You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the popular imagination, J.R.R. Tolkien was a man born for another time, a medieval anachronism, like his friend C.S. Lewis, a self-proclaimed dinosaur. There's some truth in that. He was a medievalist, perfectly at home in literatures of many dead languages and long-ago cultures. But that didn't mean he was disengaged from the events and authors of his own lifetime. Far from it, Tolkien was, it turns out, a broad reader of what was, for him, contemporary literature, and his own imagination was fired by tales new, as well as old. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Holly Ordway, Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute, visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University, and author of Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages, published by Word on Fire Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Ordway. Well, thank you for having me on. Oh, I love this book, not least of which because it kept uh, poking holes in misconceptions that I'd re- uh, received from all the places you identified. <laughs> Um, so I always like to start the conversation by talking about where a project began. So whenever you've got sort of received wisdom in a a certain area of study and someone comes along to crack that wall, some kind of fact broke through. (laughs) So how did how did you break through the wall of apparently Humphrey Carpenter and a bunch of other things in order to start questioning that received wisdom about Tolkien's supposed curmudgeonly rejection of everything post-medieval? Wow. It's, a, it's a great question because I did not start out intending to poke holes in anything. Uh, this project has been about 10 years in the making and it started out quite honestly with just my being interested in well, where did the Lord of the Rings come from? Because I had done some previous um, scholarship on the fantasy um, background, like the, the fantasy before the modern era, you know, folks like Lord Dunsany, William Morris, to see how the genre of fantasy had developed. And Tolkien had a big part in that. But then as I started, I kept thinking about it and I thought to myself, you know, Tolkien in many ways is so distinctive from what came before, what came after. I wonder, did he know any of that earlier fantasy? I wonder, you know, did he, what did he read? And so I, I just decided to find out, thinking that this might shed some light on this marvelous work, The Lord of the Rings, which, you know, The Lord of the Rings is, is in a way, a very mysterious book because, you know, it has that sort of medieval kind of flavor, the epic flavor um, that's you know, fairly easy to recognize. And yet it's globally popular. It's been translated into dozens of languages. You know, it's transgenerational in its appeal. And like, you know, you don't, people don't take Beowulf to the beach these days. (laughs) I mean, some people do, like I'm the kind of person who would, but you know, most people don't. Um, So how do we account for this, this enduring freshness, this, this relevance? And that, that was just kneeling at me. And I thought, well, I wonder how he was engaging with his own time. And I went into it fully expecting there to be only a few authors that he engaged with from the modern era because his biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, had said in the biography, Tolkien read very little modern fiction and took no serious notice of it. Boom. And everybody pretty much since then had just assumed 
that that was the case. Oh yeah, he didn't he didn't read any modern literature. Well, there's an exception here, an exception there, but the rule is he just didn't read any modern literature. So I thought, okay, I, you know, I'll I'll see what did he read. And I remember distinctly that the first time that I got over, I think, 25 titles of modern works, I was really pleased. I thought, wow, you know, I'm getting somewhere. And then I kept adding more and more and more. And there's now in, in you know, of provable ones, I have um, almost 150 authors, more than 200 titles that I can demonstrate that Tolkien knew, not thematic associations or probable, but certains. And when I, I think when I tipped over about the hundred mark, that's when I sort of sat back on my heels and thought, whoa, 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 something is off here. Because how is it that I'm still, I'm still in the process. I haven't even finished my research and I'm over a hundred different authors. And yet Carpenter says he took no serious notice of modern literature. That's just factually incorrect. It's simply not true. Not as a judgment call, but as empirical data, it's just not the case. And so that provided a real spur to, you know, spending longer on this project because I realized there's something more here. There's more than meets the eye. And it, it motivated me to dig even further, turn up even more books. Um, and then to sort of step back and say, what on earth is going on here? How did we get this idea? Why did it stick? And that provided a lot of the material for, as, as you will see in the book, the first, two the first chapter and the final chapter where I'm looking at how did we get this misconception? Because it's been demonstrated now, I think, that it is a misconception. I think you, I think you argue for something maybe even a little stronger than misconception. It almost seems like an intentional, uh, almost kind of a, a hard-nosed, predetermined desire to cast Tolkien in a particular light, regardless of what the facts said. Yes, um, and that that was an interesting thing to arrive at because again, I started out this research trusting Humphrey Carpenter as everybody else did. Um, and then when I went to ask, okay, well, how did, how did this misconception happen? And I went and I looked at the things that Carpenter himself had said about his mm -hmm. biographical work. And I was absolutely shocked because he's, he's, for one thing, he's completely snide and snarky about Tolkien. And he makes these, you know, digs at him, calls his subject a dead end subject, pretty uptight upbringing. Um, he disses the Inklings in general, calls them a bunch of, you know, basically a bunch of guys just sitting around the corner, you know, talking about each other's work and he wouldn't like them at all. Like, okay, you don't like these people. And that's a very peculiar <laughs> thing when you're writing these books about them. And then to find, you know, he's the authorized biographer, but then, there was an interview in which Carpenter was asked, how were you chosen to be the authorized biographer? And he says, oh, I wasn't really chosen. I forced myself on the Tolkien family. I went round to each of them and said, well, if you don't you know, pick me, you'll get somebody worse coming along. At least I know setting <laughs> a little bit. And of course there had been two really bad attempts at biography before Carpenter, mm -hmm. I'm sure he knew about. So they kind of went with him. He had dug himself in by a, a minor project and, you know, basically kind of bullied or cajoled them into approving him into writing this. The first draft, Christopher Tolkien hated it, ripped it to shreds. 
And then in only a week or two, Carpenter cut out all the bits that were particularly bothersome and boom, it was published. So evidently he cut the parts that were completely out of whack. Like, I mean, he, Carpenter actually said that the first version of the um, biography treated Tolkien in a slapstick manner. He just didn't even take him seriously. Yikes. Yeah. So obviously his son, Christopher is horrified, you know, cuts it, cuts, mm-hmm. cuts it up. But there's a lot of subtle things that happen in a biography that aren't rectified by just simply cutting out the most egregious errors. And mm-hmm. one of those things is I think Carpenter overall just has the attitude that Tolkien, of course, is stuck in the past, disengaged with modernity, because he just has a bad attitude about all of his work. And he has a real agenda about the Oxford setting. I mean, in another interview, Carpenter even said, oh, the real, the real topic of any biography is the biographer. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> so we really, I, I discovered that Carpenter really had a big chip on his shoulder and he presents Tolkien in I think a fairly hostile way. Now Carpenter is a very skilled writer, so he does it in a way that is convincing. And then until you look back at it, you realize that so much of what he says in the biography and in the Inklings volume, the, the group biography, he puts in his interpretations as if they were facts and he just weaves them in. And then you start seeing, oh yeah, that's Carpenter. How do we know that's correct? We don't, because he doesn't put citations. And that had a tremendous impact on the whole unfolding of Tolkien scholarship because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he edits the letters in a very tendential yep. way. Again, you know, very, very selective. Um, there were thousands of letters. Carpenter even admitted that Tolkien was one of the last great English letter writers. There's only 354 in the volume. Most of them are butchered into sometimes only a paragraph. So we really have a very limited perspective that's distorted by Carpenter's attitude. And that was really taken for granted by, you know, for scholars for decades after that. Now, in the last couple of decades, there has been quite a lot of good scholarship with people kind of realizing, oh, well, there's this little bit, this, there's this author that Tolkien read who was modern, and there's that, you know, that Tolkien read that was modern. So there was actually quite a lot of good scholarship, and, you know, I've got a 14-page bibliography <laughs> in the book. But the interesting thing is that pretty much everybody was thinking that their little insight was the exception to the rule. Exception, 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 exception. But what I realized, there is no rule. There is no rule. Um, And we have a a couple of really good scholars like Berlin Flagger, for instance, who's saying, we really should look at the bigger picture of Tolkien in the modern culture. Um, John Garth did a great job with, you know, looking at him in terms of, um, you know, the the Great War. Um, Diana Glyer, a great job with looking at him in the context of collaboration with the Inklings. Um, but in the larger body of Tolkien scholarship, everybody has been really bound by this idea that there's one rule to bind them all. Tolkien didn't really care about modern literature. There is no rule. <laughs> We've thrown that into the fires of Mount Doom. Now we can actually talk about what he read and what he thought about modern literature and culture. It's much more interesting. That's, that, that's cool. One of the things that I really appreciated uh, early on is you set yourself some pretty strict ground rules and then still manage to continually knock things out of the park, even with stringent ground rules. Um, and I have read before um, other articles, uh, treatments of Tolkien's um, 
purported influence from from a, a modern a Victorian or a 20th century author that were based entirely on things like um, putative echoes of theme or image or things of that nature. But uh, you set your bar con considerably higher. So what counts as Tolkien's reading in this book? Um, I, I counted it as if I could find evidence that he knew the book, actual mm -hmm. evidence, and that included he references the book or the author in his own writings. Um, it might be in his, in his draft material, in his published writings, in his letters, um, things like that. Um, it could be that he's known to have owned the book. Um, now granted, ownership of a book doesn't mean you've necessarily read it, but at least, but at least he knew of it and he valued it enough yeah. to have a copy of it, right? right. Um, and, and actually in, in that respect, I even went so far as to you know, get some photographs of um, him, him in his study, had to pay for the rights for them to use them for research even, and zoomed in and read the titles on the shelves. That's, nice. where, I found, that's where I found some titles that nobody else had known about. I just looked at his shelves. Um, so books that he owned. Um, also, I looked at what did other people who knew him say, um, you know, if they mentioned that Tolkien knew a certain author or they had discussed a certain author with him, I consider that also to be evidence that he knew, knew the book in question. So everything I have in the book is based on some direct connection to Tolkien himself with evidence to say, this is how we know. So I completely excluded all of the simply thematic parallels, just out, none of that. Um, I excluded all the things that, you know, he, he probably read because most people were reading them at that time or the other inklings read it. So he probably did. Well, probably isn't good enough. I excluded all of the books um, that are mentioned in his Oxford English Dictionary um, sample quotations because it turns out that he wouldn't have picked those quotations himself. I, I researched the way that the dictionary worked. He didn't pick the quotations. They're irrelevant. Um, you know, I didn't include anything that was just in a reading list he was associated with because, you know, as professors, we know that, you know, department reading lists are put together by, you know, groups of people. You don't necessarily read everything on the list. So I excluded all the things that were kind of, well, probably. Now, granted, um, un undoubtedly, there are titles in those probables that he did indeed read. But I felt that it was really necessary to have a really strict and stringent analysis because there isn't one. Right. Uh, and once you have that, you can build on it. Because right now, you know, when I was doing my research, I was somebody so frustrated. Someone would say, oh, Tolkien knew such and such book. Oh, great, that's cool. And I would go look it up and it was just a thematic connection. It was just a probable. Like, well, that's not the same thing. So yep. in my argument, you know, I do make some arguments for how these books might have influenced or shaped Middle Earth or how he made use of them. People can argue or take issue with my interpretations. Great, you know, this is literary criticism. Let it, you know, let the discussions roll. But all of them are based on knowing that he knew the book in question. Yep. And that is a very different thing than saying, here, let me develop this long argument on a book that we don't actually know whether he read it or not and so that yeah that was my my strict criteria and as as you see i still ended up with quite a lot to say about it yeah. <laughs> so i think that proved the worst of the uh, of the approach yes uh dear, dear listeners uh the the text of the book itself not counting the copious endnotes and and uh 
the charts at the 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 appendices. I'm, I was so happy there were appendices. Um, it's it's just shy, it's just shy of three hundred pages, not even including appendices, enormous notes, big fat index, and bibliography. Like <laughs> it's a lot. And the interesting thing is, I've I've gotten several different comments, you know, in talking about this book, that people I think had been assuming that because the Tolkien estate hasn't opened up, you know, the, the private materials to other scholars, that we couldn't possibly know anything else. So we just have to, you know, kind of wonder. And I didn't have any special access to anything. Um, I just set out to look at what can I find? And, you know, over many years, I visit a lot of archives. I, you know, in my acknowledgements, I list a whole bunch of them in, you know, in England and America. Um, you know, going to these different archives and looking stuff up and looking at the materials and then tracking down interviews. That turned out to be extremely fruitful because I found yep. interviews that hadn't been republished of Tolkien's. Um, cool. And really I found cool. lots of interviews of friends and students and family members of Tolkien, again, that had never been republished. Found them in the Bodleian archives, the Wade Center archives, you know, odds and ends of places, Oxfordshire um, History Center archives. And often that gave insights into what he had been reading, but it's all been there. Just no one has looked. Yeah. I, I was really astounded at everyone relying on Humphrey Carpenter's, he doesn't really read modern literature. When, when you look at your, your charts at the back of the book, you've got a column at the head of which is letters. And it's the ones, because you don't have access to the ones that haven't been published you just got just just got the ones that Humphrey edited, like just that column itself is you know at least something like a third of the books that you've got. Yeah, I mean there are there are some there are some unpublished letters that are in our archive that I did look oh, at. Okay, okay. Quote from them, um, but I mean I could have asked permission to quote from them, but decided that it wasn't right. relevant to do that. But, um, mm -hmm. but I don't I don't actually think that anything anything came out of those that was particularly useful. It was mostly it was the published letters. Um, yeah. A few other letters have turned up that have been published in other, you know, magazines or you know, other sources. But yeah, ninety nine percent of that letters column, and quite possibly all of the ones that um, actually generate titles, is from Carpenter's editing of the letters. And that was a fascinating example of the the kind of hypnosis of he read no modern literature because right there. In it, I've got a huge section on J.H. Shorthouse and the book John Ingleson, which Tolkien discusses in the published letters. It's been hiding in plain sight for how many years? It's right there. We've yep. got in the letters, Tolkien saying, oh yeah, um, E.A. Wick Smith's The Marvelous Land of Snurgs is an unconscious source book for the hobbits. Unconscious source book, that's kind of important, you know? Yeah. And it's been, it's been mentioned, it ha that has been picked up a couple of times, but people don't, people seem not to have picked up on the fact that, you know, there's good stuff in the letters, we should pay attention. And he mentions yeah. Asimov in the letters, you know, like lots of really cool things. Yeah. Totally just missed because, well, we all know he didn't read modern literature. So therefore, <laughs> yeah. well, yep. now we know. He did read modern literature. Well, in the 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 Be Beowulf, the monsters and the critics um, has a few allusions, but even more in uh, his uh, the the on fairy stories, the lecture and 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 the essay, um, which 
I'd never particularly noticed. And then I kind of went back. I was like, wait, I'm reading your book. And I'm like, was all that? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's it's like every page. He's talking about someone that he's I'm like, huh. All right. (laughs) Part of this is um, that because they're just names to us now, one of the the tasks of of this book was to get back into the context of Tolkien's day, because there's a really powerful filtering effect that we only pay attention to the authors that have kind of made it through. So of all the authors that influenced Tolkien, George MacDonald has gotten a fair bit of attention. Yeah. Well, George MacDonald is still read today, in large part because mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis you know, made such a, a big emphasis on him. So people have paid attention to George MacDonald, but so many of the authors that Tolkien singles out, you know, S.R. Crockett, you know, um, E.A. Wick-Smith, J.H. Uh, Shorthouse, who has heard of them today? Right. And we just kind of, in a lot of the authors that are mentioned in, um, you know, on fairy stories, you know, they're just, they're just names if it is so easy to pass them over. But for Tolkien, they weren't just names. They were authors that he knew, that he read. And one of the really interesting things about this research was finding out that so many of the authors that now were like, who are they, were actually really well known. I mean, finding out, like Lord Dunsany is sort of vaguely known as a, as a fantasy author, but I found out that he was, a, you know, extremely well known as a writer of plays. W.B. Yeats commissioned him to write a radio play. Um, he was he was a big name. Wow. Who who would have thought? I didn't. So it really makes us, I think, see that we need to get back into the context of the time, yeah. and look at the authors. That, that Tolkien read and take them seriously for for the time and not just as, you know assume that I'll, I'm only going to look at the ones that made it you know made it through the test of time. Right. Yeah, it, that that was uh, it. It was a real it was a real education in in seeing things that I know I'd seen before but hadn't noticed. <laughs> so yeah, I love the way that so much of this book is taken up with things that Tolkien read really before his adulthood, things that he was reading as a child or were read to him as a child, um, or he was reading as an, as an adolescent. Um, How much of that was really shaping the trajectory of not just his literary career. So things that show up in middle earth, but also things that are shaping his professional career. So what are some examples of who he read and who he loved and maybe just a, a little bit of how they, how those early, how that early reading shaped the one we know and love? Well, I think, you know, there's, there's the positive influences. So we see, for instance, his reading of fairy stories, uh, which is mm-hmm. really extensive and he's got, he's forming preferences fairly early. So he enjoys, for instance, the story of Sigurd that's in the Andrew Lang's Red Fairy book. He enjoys the yeah. Andrew Lang stories in general. And he's not as impressed with sort of the more Victorian um, moralistic fantasy and, uh, and, and eventually, you know, makes a point of trying not to do that in his own works. Although he goes through a phase, um, like with a poem, Goblin Feet, which is pure Victorian sugar overdose. It's, it's, it's pretty wretched, actually. Um, <laughs> and, and Tolkien thought it was you know he actually wished that the, he wished that it could be completely forgotten and obliterated 
so we see that he passes through that phase and he passes out of it. Um, so we see early on in his reading of fairy stories, both that he's really engaging with the fairy tale genre. Um, it's incredibly nourishing for him, but he's discerning, you know, I think at a fairly early age, likes and dislikes. You know, he takes against Hans Christian Andersen um, because he finds him too moralistic. Um, <laughs> so I think that is really interesting to see the way that he really can sniff out the kind of moralizing impulse. And I think that says a lot about the power of his, of his fiction, you know, as a later, as an adult, being aware that he has a Christian underpinning, but being pretty allergic to making it overt. He doesn't want it to become moralizing. So I think you can see that that's a, a you know, positive shaping as he's seeing the power of the fairy stories and then drawing from it what works and discarding you know, the bits that, that don't. And then I think another example that's interesting in terms of negative influence, what I call influence by opposition, is to look at some of the um, boys adventure fiction that he read. Um, again, yep. look, actually reading the books um, reading some of the adventure fiction, um, like The Lost Explorers, for instance, and oh my word, they're so horrifically racist. Yeah. It's funny. Um, and I think that was an eye-opener too. First of all, because we tend to forget how much better we are about these things now, that, you know, that all the efforts of people to not be racist in literature has, has actually helped, because yeah. just the the portrayals of the Africans, you know, and the um, Aboriginal Australians in, in these stories is absolutely toe-curlingly horrible. They're, they're portrayed as animals. It's just, it's the colonial aspect is just, it's vile. Yeah. And the thing is that this was totally characteristic of boys' adventure fiction of Tolkien's day. It was just standard. Um, it was mm -hmm. just how it all was. So I think that this sheds a lot of light on Tolkien's very, very different approach to race in The Lord of the Rings. When you see what he read as a boy, you, and then you look at things like, you know, the Ganbury Gan um, and the way that he, he's basically an Aboriginal figure and he's mm -hmm. presented with respect. Um, he's, he's shown to be someone who's, whose advice is listened to. Um, Tolkien makes, indicates that the writers of Rohan have, have actually had a racist past. They've hunted, you know, the wild men of the woods as if they were animals. So that's, he's not idolizing his, his characters. They have had, you know, a past where they had been unjust and that's brought up. And then, you know, Aragorn, when he becomes king, declares that now they're sovereign, they have their own, you know, they have the force of Druidan forever. Um, so it's actually reinforcing this idea that, it was wrong for the writers of Rohan to behave that way. And they should be self-determining and they are, you know, equal members of, of you know, the peoples of Middle Earth. That attitude is just a million miles away from what you see in the colonialist racist literature that was so typical of Tolkien's boyhood. And I think that contrast shows a lot about frankly, his moral quality, you know, he's, he recognizes injustice when he sees it, but he's also reacting against it. And he's saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to portray in my fiction, something that's better, something that respects people who are different. And that's, that's a, a kind of influence. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is uh, th things that you treat late, treat of later in the book, but I was, um, the, the, 
the topic is is raised uh, i was thinking of his uh appreciation for longfellow's song of hiawatha while also um ultimately fi- finding it um flawed and lacking because it isn't authentically native american um that he's actually really disappointed that it isn't <laughs> that it, that it's only and a, a kind of pastiche um a, a pseudo um a veneer not not the real thing um and his his appreciation for uh, uh writer haggard as well is you know not that that all of writer haggard's novels are would would necessarily pass the the um the instincts and standards of today, but it is writer Haggard that uh, introduces a story about a displaced king who is hired unknown to be the guide on a treasure hunt. And then it turns out that he is, you know, going to be restored to his throne <laughs> and it's the sub-Saharan African. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, that. I thought that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool yeah, stuff. It is. It is. I think very, very interesting. And I think it just seeing the the scope of his reading helps us to kind of make these make these connections. Yeah, yeah. I really uh, appreciated how you kind of settled into the way that he. I, I'd, I'd known for a long time because you know I'm I've studied old English in school. I'm also you know, was very interested in the old Norse angles. And of course it was, it was Tolkien who got me into that, you know? And so I knew that he loved the saga of the Valsungs and the Sigurd story, but I don't think it had um, landed on me the degree to which his route into the Sigurd story through Andrew Lang, not straight from the Icelandic source or even through William Morris, the degree to which that was, important to how he'd received it um yeah even even just the the images of of dragons crawling through cracks and things like that was that was just fascinating yeah and i think it's it's interesting too because since we know that he became you know a world-class philologist and an expert Mm -hmm. in medieval languages and literature i think it can be kind of tempting to unconsciously assume that he basically hatched from the egg as (laughs) on you know, that one day just cracked open and there he was, you know, with his waistcoat and his tweed jacket and his pipe and everything, you know, fully right. formed. Um, you know, that's the picture we have of him. Uh, but in fact, he grew into it. And, you know, and I think seeing the route by which he arrived at it, and yeah, just exactly as you say, the fact that his first encounter with a lot of what would become important to him is mediated through you know, Andrew Lang, William Morris, um, you know, other, other writers of fantasy, it helps, I think, to understand him better. And I also think that it helps to, you know, legitimate, not that it really needs it, but to legitimate the path of people who, like you, like me, <laughs> um, came in large part to the study of literature or medieval languages through Tolkien. Yeah. Um, and I know that for me, I really can point to Tolkien as probably the inspiration for my literary critical career because I read his um, On Fairy Stories when I was a teenager. I mean, mind blown. Here is this author I admire talking about fantasy. Like you can do that. Wow, you can think about it that way. Um, and so I think, and I think there's a lot of people who have gone into Old English um, because of Tolkien. 
And sometimes I think people can be a little bit snobbish about that, as if that wasn't authentic, as if, you know, well, if you were a real old English scholar, you would have started from scratch or something. <laughs> like, yeah. As if it didn't count to come to it through a popular author. So I love the fact that, as you've just pointed out, Tolkien himself is a model yeah. of coming to his academic study through popular authors. Because you know, William Morris was a you know wildly popular author of the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, even the, is it Ryder Haggard who has his kind of uh, sort of uh, his, his Viking saga fantasy, uh, Eric Bright Eyes, just that, that popular fiction that was presenting reimagined uh, fictional explorations of those same settings. And then you follow that back to its source in the sagas. Well, you get, for instance, you and she, the shirt of Aminardis with the, with the, mm -hmm. with the inscriptions. Um, that are transliterated and transcribed into the book itself. Um, and Haggard took great pains to get that to be accurate, you know, more or less. Um, and of course, Tolkien would have studied Latin and Greek, you know, as a, as a boy at King Edward School. So you can imagine, you know, the, the, you know, the young Tolkien, wow, this is so cool. Here's this adventure story with these, these other languages in it and just the kind of romance, the mystique yeah. of it. Yeah, it, I, I'm undoubtedly so cool. inspire his, his academic work. What I love, one of the things that I love about this is that I didn't know that Tolkien loved Ryder Haggard when I discovered Ryder Haggard as a young man. I didn't know that he knew about William Morris when, you know, I found a, an old William Morris novel in a used bookstore and I was like, oh, this is kind of neat. <laughs> you know, and then for some reason, I finished this book feeling even closer to this man that I never met than I've felt through my whole career of attempting to recapitulate him <laughs> to a certain degree. <laughs> Finding out that he'd read so many of the things that I loved and also loved them, including Robert Howard. <laughs> like knowing, learning that Tolkien had read Conan stories and liked them. <laughs> I actually cried a little bit for reasons I can't actually really parse because Howard had such a sad life and knowing that his work came to Tolkien's attention and brought pleasure to him was kind of, there was something in that that was cathartic. I'm not even really sure I can name the emotion, but still it was there. Yeah. And you know, it's, 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 it's moving to me to hear that because I, I found myself actually quite deeply moved at a personal level by all the things that I was learning about Tolkien. Because yeah. um, in fact, I, I spent a decade trying to get into his head, you know, think, you know, thinking his thoughts after him, reading what he read, because yeah. I actually went and read these books, um, almost all of them. I, Tolkien said that he read all of Sinclair Lewis's books, and I, I couldn't. I just, <laughs> um, but I read, you know, I've like, enough. read enough of them. And um which again, I think is, is not typical because we know, oh yeah, he, he knew The House of the Wolfings by William Morris and The Roots of the Mountains. Well, how many people have actually read them all the way through? Not that many, I would say. I couldn't make it all the way through House of the Wolfings. I tried. I did, I did. Um, Good on you. But it was actually really quite moving to kind of you know spend this time, you know, basically getting into his head and, and learning about his preferences. And finding as I did that, that the more I got to know him, the more I loved him, the more I admired him. 
you know, he would have been the first to say that he was flawed, you know, a human being, he has flaws, but just the goodness of him and just the, I don't know, it's hard to even put a word to it, just the, the attractiveness, the, the, the wholesomeness of his, of his character. And just to, just to kind of know that he was reading all these sorts of things. I mean, for me, I think Isaac Asimov and, and the yeah. fact that he read science fiction was a point because I was a huge science fiction you know, buff when I was a teenager without any idea that Tolkien knew any of these. So I'm like, yeah. Isaac Asimov, like I was reading the foundation stories and thinking that's a super cool. And he named Asimov as a favorite author, you know? And I just feel this, this kind of closeness to him. Um, and and I, I feel like it kind of gave a more well-rounded picture of Tolkien the man, which I just, I just appreciated and tried to share that in the book. I have a shelf in my corner that has Tolkien and Lewis on it, but also Asimov and a little Lovecraft and some M.R. James and some Edgar Rice Burroughs. And having read this book and realized that the man on that shelf in the middle had read pretty much everything else. <laughs> it, was, it, was just, it was just delightful that I could imagine sitting down to actually talk, talk with Tolkien about, okay, so ghost stories of an antiquary. Let's and talk about that. Be able to chat about that, you know? I mean, he'd read a Lovecraft story in one of the anthologies that he Oh read. my word. And that, that I, I was a huge Lovecraft fan as well, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, so that, that was like, wow. And then the fact in discovering from the interviews, you know, just learning about him, the fact that he was very extroverted, he very sociable, he loved to talk and he loved to talk about just about anything. Um, and not, not just, you know, you know, old English type things, but anything. Um, I can, I was able to really imagine that, yeah, I could be going for a walk, you know, stopping every three paces to look at a flower and chatting about all of these, all of these books. Um, and then also for me, I can picture it all the more because one of the things that I learned is that contra a lot of assumptions, Tolkien actually got on very well with women. He had a lot of women friends. Um, he specifically names women in the English faculty as close personal friends. This is not the narrative that is generally recounted. People yeah. just kind of assume that he was some sort of misogynistic, you know, old fogey. And he wasn't, he actually, he, he worked with women, he tutored women, he made a point of helping two of his women students from Leeds get jobs at the Oxford English Dictionary. You know, he, again, he had female friends. So I actually can very easily picture myself strolling along the street and having a grand old conversation with Tolkien and it would have been, it would have been fine. It would have been great. Delightful. That's so wonderful. You mentioned the uh, the shirt of oh gosh, uh, I'm an artist, something like that. Um, that particular chunk of exploring the degree to which he wanted his uh, his printed books to also have a kind of artifact feel to them, um, and having learned that from the the pains that Haggard took to create this kind of you know, facsimile of this fictional thing. Um, it's, it's almost kind of like, you know, materialized ekphrasis. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was something I was found quite intriguing um, because I had the privilege of seeing a, a Bodleian exhibition um, probably 
about six or eight years ago, not the most recent one, but one before that, where they had some of the pages of Tolkien's Book of Masarbul on display. The so cool. simile ones. And I was looking at them and you really can see what I tried to describe in the book. He had burned the edges. He had poked holes with a needle to like do the bite. He, he was a perfectionist in every possible way. That's and so cool. It looked remarkable. And then to discover, you know, because you know, he mentions sort of I'm an artist. So I went and I looked it up. And what was really interesting um, was to find that, you know, modern um, editions of, um, of She often print it in a kind of black and white. And, okay, it's fine. But then to go back, and one of the things that I tried to do um, in my research for this is whenever possible, I tried to get my hands on a copy of the edition that Tolkien would most likely have known himself. Oh, that's cool. And yep. it generated some real insights. Um, like sometimes I could even track down because of when he commented on it and what editions had been published, sometimes I could be certain it was this edition because that's of cool. the dates. And realizing that the early editions of Ryder Haggard She um, had much more detailed productions of the replica of the shirt, like colored frontispieces. And that's why I put one in the photo gallery. Um, and when you look at a colored picture of the shirt, you realize you see the influence on the Book of Masarbul in a really profound way that you can't get just from seeing a black and white reproduction in a you know penguin paperback. Yeah, that's that was just am uh, amazing to me that that some of the some of the things that from for me as a young reader were most immersive in his novels, most um, kind of materially constitutive of that secondary reality, right? Um, were, te were techniques that he learned, not invented. Yeah, and, and he, he drew on them because he's mm -hmm. a genius. But yeah, he, he drew on them. And it's really kind of a humanizing of his process of invention. And yeah. also, I think, profoundly encouraging because, yeah. it, you know, he didn't just burst, you know, out with something unprecedented. He drew on what he had read. He, he reflected on it. He, he mused on it. He, he experimented with it. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of, you know, different attempts he makes at certain things in, in his, mm. his writings. And then finally, the full-blown the full version in The Lord of the Rings. And that's, I think, really encouraging in the sense of, yeah, we should read a lot. We should, we should learn from what we read. We should try stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's really, that, yeah. That, especially for one who all of his life, I, I always, I thought one day I'll be like Tolkien and I was thinking I'll write big fact fantasy books. And it ended up that getting a PhD in old English was easier. <laughs> than actually being productive with creative writing <laughs> but to but to see yeah to see the degree to which um he was he was learning he was resourcing he was he wasn't this you know kind of you know as you said hatched out of the egg with tweed in the pipe um but that there was a, a growth and a development and that all the all the pieces were just lying there for us to see it's yeah. delightful well, one angle that uh, I think uh, I, I don't want to I don't want to neglect because uh, when you when you included this, you brought um, you brought especially uh, attention to it because it's something that you feel Carpenter neglects, which is the the fact that Tolkien was a 
lifelong, uh, pious and devoted Catholic. Um, the degree to which I, I knew about his personal piety, that's, that's something that's been talked about, you know, pretty frequently, but the degree to which he was plugged into, uh, was reading and was in some cases even personally acquainted with sort of the Roman Catholic literati of, of the period, that was fascinating. Yeah, and that is something that we just have the tip of the iceberg because Carpenter, he completely neglects that. And I think on mm -hmm. purpose, because Carpenter, as I discovered, um, was an atheist. He, he was the son of the Anglican Bishop of Oxford and rebelled against his upbringing. So, oh. so, so many chips on his shoulder. It's unbelievable. So yeah. he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really take Tolkien's faith seriously. And he downplays it, I think, whenever he has the opportunity. And partly, I think that's deliberate. Partly, I think it's ignorance because he simply doesn't know what that even means. Um, so that, that combination of those two factors means that we see very little of that side. And that has caused some real misunderstandings in how we, we see Tolkien. Because on the one hand, it's become very easy to read Tolkien as not being particularly religious is kind of bracketing that. It's like, oh, the personal piety and then all the rest of his life. Right. That's not how he was. But then there's the other extreme where people will pick up on his statement about the Lord of the Rings being a fundamentally religious and Catholic work and then kind of take this sort of triumphalistic approach and say, well, see, look, it's a Christian allegory. And, you know, like, oh, no, no, it's no, it's not. It, you got to look at the whole, the bigger picture. Um, it's a, more complex than that. So I was really interested when I discovered that he was, in fact, more plugged in, as you say, to the Catholic context. And it makes sense, because again, part of my research was trying to understand what was Oxford like, what was Birmingham like, um, the number of hours I spent wandering around the streets of his neighborhood in, in uh, Ladywood to get the insights to put into that prelude. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> lovely. Yeah, um, but looking at you know, what was it like? And I think we, you know, we tend now to forget Catholics actually were very much a disenfranchised minority, even yep. within his lifetime. Um, you know, it's a, it, you know, it's a definite different context than for us today. So he, he would have, it would make sense that would be plugged into the Catholic um, in context well, what did that entail? And there I had to go and start following up, you know, other threads that Carpenter doesn't bring up. And one of those had to do with his involvement with the Newman Association. Um, so it seems impossible that he wouldn't have known, you know, John Henry Cardinal Newman very well, because Newman founded the Birmingham Oratory. Um, and it turns out that Father Francis Morgan, Tolkien's guardian, had been a personal secretary to Cardinal Newman. Yeah, yeah, he knows Newman. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I bet, I think. Um, and then um, Douglas Anderson had turned up this fascinating little snippet of newspaper article in which Tolkien had co-signed um, a letter of protest about Soviet um, violations of religious freedom. And he co-signs it as a um, vice president of the Newman Association. And that at the time that Anderson, you know, shared it, oh, well, that's cool. Well, I thought, well, that's cool, but is there more? Is there more to that? 
And so what I did is I actually traveled to Durham, England, um, because the archives of the Newman Association are held in the Palace Green Library. Um, they're not digitized. I actually went there um, and spent an entire day looking through folder after folder of things like committee notes, you know, members meetings from the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, um, you know, which undoubtedly had not been touched in about four years from the dawn of dust in them. And what do you know? It wasn't a one-off thing. Turns out that for a number of years, um, he was continually serving as a vice president of the Newman Association. And wow. in fact, he had even been involved in the Oxford circle of the Newman Association um, because he'd been involved in an event there. So he was involved with this national Catholic organization that's interested in cultural engagement and evangelization in, you know, in being a Catholic presence at the university. That's pretty cool. And as yeah. far as I know, um, I mean, Anderson turned up that article, but other than that, I don't think anybody knew about this involvement. It's not this you know, ongoing involvement. And this is the National Newman Association, which is different from the local Newman Society that he was also involved with. It's easy to conflict the two, but they're different. So he's involved in two different Catholic societies. Like, again, we don't see no. any of this, Ian Carpenter, but it's there. And that's just surely just the tip of the iceberg. You know, thank God for Robert's rules of orders and keeping meeting minutes. <laughs> Yes, and for whoever it was who thought to pop those folders, you know, in a box and, and file them away, because they, it was it was excruciatingly dull um, up until the moment when, um, <laughs> when I kid you not, I let out an audible yelp of joy when I turned the page and I saw Tolkien's name, and of course the you know the archivist is like, yes, like, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, yeah. sorry. Mm -hmm. sorry <laughs> now but but there there was a there was an audible yelp <laughs> that is that is awesome that is really really cool you know archival research is you don't know you don't know what you will find um i was perfectly well prepared to spend 10 hours looking through committee notes and finding nothing but i found something that's ah uh, that's wonderful that's so cool well I have really been enjoying this hour of conversation. Um, there is so much more to this book, dear reader, uh, but we don't actually have enough hours before the sun goes down to talk about all of it. Um, if you remember, dear listener, uh, from earlier, she is, is it over 150, almost 150? Um, I'm actually now at 149 authors. Um, I discovered... <sighs> There's 148 in the first printing. I, there's one more added to the second printing. Um, so 149 <laughs> authors, more than 200 titles. Oh, my word. Yes. So there is, there is a lot here. And we haven't even gotten into um, the Black Douglas. And we haven't even gotten into um, E.R. Edison. And, uh, and what did Tolkien so really much. think about Narnia, which is another bit that I <laughs> Oh, that was lovely. So there's so much more, so much more. Uh, but one of the ways that Christian Humanist Profiles tries to show hospitality to our guests is by giving you the last word. Is there anything that we haven't said, anything that we haven't explored, or perhaps a point that we touched on that you would like to be the last thing that our listeners think about as we close our conversation? 
Well, I, I have to say what we've really hit on what I think is the heart of the matter. So I'll just kind of reiterate that, which is that this really is about revising our picture Tolkien and getting mm -hmm. a more, a more well-rounded picture. And I think that matters because it helps us see, you know, he's, he's a, see him as a writer, see him as a human being. Um, in both of those ways, he's a, I think really a profound role model. Um, you know, we can look at him and see, you know, look at, look at the positive influence that he had personally amongst his friend circle, you know, worldwide. What, what was his imaginative, his, his intellectual life like? Um, and I think we see a much richer perspective and we see that he's really, he's engaged with the modern world and he's engaged with it, but discerningly. He isn't just going along with it, but he isn't just purely rejecting it. He's doing that thing, which is so hard and so necessary, which is being in the world, but not of it. Yeah. He's engaging, you know, thoughtfully, discerningly. Um, and I think that is a habit of mind that we just really need. Um, and I think we can learn that from Tolkien. Uh, and I think that ultimately is why I think it's important to look at what did he read? Because it's, it's interesting in itself, I think. Um, <clears throat> but in a larger picture, seeing the way that his creative imagination was fed um, has larger implications about, you know, the importance of reading, the importance of wide reading, the importance of wide and charitable reading. Um, the way that he very charitably um, and hospitably engages with authors with whom he profoundly disagreed on, you know, this is something that he shows us. So I think that wider picture of Tolkien as a reader and a thinker engaging with his time, that's what I kind of hope people will take away from, from looking, at the, looking at this overall. That's great. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Ordway. This has been, this has just been a delight. Oh, well, it has been an absolute pleasure for me as well. So thank you for having me on. Well, dear listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed the conversation as well. If you have any feedback on it, uh, we're, you can send us email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, you can also post comments on the show notes for this episode when they show up on christianhumanist.org, our blog. Also, we're on Twitter, CH Radio Network. So we'd respond to that too. We're on Facebook. Just look for us. In the meanwhile, Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. So this is David Grubbs urging you to be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles. <laughs>